Welcome to Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. These candid, unfettered, and unedited talks create connection and inspiration across the human story. These are the sharings of how we came to be ourselves, how we found our life's purpose, and how we made it from there to here. I speak with performers, artists, artisans, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, and other remarkable people about what they do and how they came to do it. Also, the music you hear on this show is performed, as always, by Brad Watson. Today I speak with actor, martial artist, maker, mover, shaker, and creative force, Zachary Teagan. We talk about growing up in the 1970s, starting off as a child actor, making films, training in martial arts, studying spiritual psychology, discovering freedom through comedy, and finding the importance of connection and balance in a topsy-turvy world. An inspired meander of a conversation I hope you enjoy. Here's me and Zach. Going hello there, my dear friend Zach Tegan. Welcome to Hello, 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 hi, hi. It's been it's been forever, dude. <laughs> it's been a while. You know, there's always like we were talking about, you know, meeting up at the clown house with everybody and doing our thing. It's like, I can't do it. I'm not gonna do it. and then you know, we had the luxury back then of like actually just letting that stuff slide and choose to do that or not. Now we don't have that choice and it's sort of a new world. And ever since this happened. It's like time is ticking. I'm losing people, you know, time feels compressed and it's very topsy-turvy in terms of like we were talking about earlier. Um, just it's different. Everything's different now. Everything's different. And have you noticed like the pace of time seems off? I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, it seems like everything is sped up, which, which goes against, you know, conventional wisdom because you'd think that it would be dragged out, but it's actually much quicker so there's an urgency to things these days yeah i'm trying to uh be mindful of that because i feel the same thing to touch upon we chatted before we started rolling you know uh that feeling that seems to be mounting and i don't know how much of that is like tapping into a collective consciousness of uncertainty and future stuff future tripping or it's just our own anxiety that we're reacting to, or it's both, or all of it, who knows. But I feel that too, and I'm trying to discern whether to listen to that impulse or uh, utilize that energy in a constructive way and creative way. And that's been sort of the challenges of late is to be aware, as you said, of this, of this feeling of this push, this energetic whatever, and this pressure, and to utilize it in a way that's constructive. Because I think the way I feel about it, not to get too morose, it's like there's so much pressure building right now. It's like, you ever seen those sandwich presses that just push down that sandwich, you know, to a crispy perfection and squeeze. Everything is being squeezed out uh, and there's no room for nonsense anymore. Internally, it has to be almost distilled and refined in order to feel like I, I'm going to survive at this point, which is really interesting, even on a psychological level, you know. But yeah, I feel that urgency too, um, for sure. Yes. And, and times were very different when we, were, when we were growing up. I mean, that's the thing. It's like modern life is much more complicated now and it's, it moves at a faster pace and social media has such, a, um, such, a, such an impact. And, you know, when you're a kid growing up in the 70s, 
you know, you don't even have a Walkman. You you have no. like you're 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 walking along with a boombox. I mean, it's just like it was so, simple. Dan, I have to tell you, in the '70s, just to hold that. Yeah. My mom let me dress up as the Incredible Hulk in the 70s. Do you remember the show, The Incredible Hulk, where Bill, Bill Bixby was an awesome Bixby. actor? Yeah. And there's a scene where he, he starts turning into the Hulk. And when he turns into the Hulk, his clothes are ripped and he's green. My mom let me rip up a bunch of clothes and wear shorts and walk through the neighborhood. And she let me use green food coloring all over my body. It didn't come out for like weeks. But in the 70s, that's how things were. They were different for sure. You don't see that anymore. You're not going to see that. It, and and actually speaking of that so where tell me where you were started your early years where where were you a kid i was conceived on an island apparently my mother and my father were married by a shaman in hawaii not legally come to find out but they had a hut on an island that had a bunch of pigs on it and they built a hut and they had fresh water and they lived like hippies and uh i think my father from what i gather was trying to avoid the draft for one reason and just got off the grid with my mother, went to Hawaii, uh, ate coconuts and lived in, talk about hippies, lived in a hut and get, got fresh water from a, a, some sort of a stream that ran into the ocean. I was conceived there, but, but born in New York City, long time ago, 1972, which just seems like light years now. It's funny, just like a couple of years ago, I felt pretty okay. Now I feel like I'm finally getting old. It's like that time thing. It's like this sometimes like, whoa, now that's that spans of life is gone. And I'm here now. And what just happened? Okay, let's reassess. Yeah. So anyway, born I, in New York. If yeah. it makes you feel better. I, I was three when you were born. <laughs> so I'm ahead of you. Yeah, but we're all, you know, that's that era. It's still the era. I mean, there was nothing, nothing like in comparison to what's going on today in terms of technology. You know, and, and your mom, didn't you say that she worked on the Sunny and Cher show? She was an actual, it's funny you say that. I guess after New York, when I was born, they came to Los Angeles, California. Uh, my mother was working for Cher. I guess she was like, she was making clothes for her out of old denim. And uh, Sonny was involved. I don't know how or what in-depth part he was, he was a part of, but uh, she was making clothes for him, and I have pictures of me with them, and I have a picture of Walter Cronkite holding me as a baby for some reason. So they were doing that. My father was a musician, still is, and is also an acupuncturist in Florida. They broke up, blah, blah, blah. That's another story. But uh, yeah, that's what they came out here for, and I started acting when I was a kid out here. So I was kind of doing my thing and had an agent, William Morris Children's Division, I guess, Mm. and uh, got in the union and all that stuff as a, as a three-year-old, actually. Wow, so you, you popped out and hit the ground running as an actor. As a yeah, I had to pay the bills, man. And being held by, and you were, you were held by the most trusted man in America. Yeah, I, was like, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know the story of that. I just remember seeing him like, Mom, is that Walter Cronkite? She goes, yeah, you know, they met him somewhere and he loved me. I guess he picked me up and they took a picture. I don't know if they knew him, I don't know. But she was in that world, you know, designer, I guess, with Sonny and Cher and all the satellite people around at that time, which I'm sure was a blast and crazy and wild. And, you know, who knows? That's such an, like an epoch. It's a whole other era. And know? the 70s was its own thing. And there was something kind of innocent about that time compared to now. I think so. It's like there was still naivete and there's like an innocence, like you say. I, I really believe, like, it, 
I, I totally agree with that. I couldn't give you an example of, of why. I don't know if it's because of social media and the exposure and the ability to, uh, I was telling Bia the story, like when I was a little kid, I went to Catholic school, St. Michael's in New York. And I remember the, the, the father, I was talking to the father, he was talking about the Holy Spirit and sometimes the Holy Spirit will leave you if you don't connect with him. And I, all this over, the head, over my head stuff as a kid, like, I don't know what he was talking about. But I remember him saying, when you pass away, when you die, you're going to be able to go up to heaven and ask God anything you want, and he'll give you the answer. And I was talking to B about that. Like, now I think about it, I can do that on the internet. God is the internet now in that equation, you know. And if I could ask God something, I'm like, who's really running the show here? Like, what's going on politically? All this stuff? But um, And why wait? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think it was a different time. And now you have access to everything all at once. And nervous systems are being born differently. And already, like, they say that even some kids at a very young age are able to access a keyboard and know, you know, naturally how to use a keyboard because it's starting to become ingrained in our DNA. How much of this is fact, I don't know, but this is what I'm picking up, you know. Um, so neurologically speaking, I think we're evolving and advancing in tandem with technology. And I think we didn't have access to that as kids. We're more and more earth-based, I think. Yeah, we're, we're, we, we were the last of the analog generation. And, and, and now um, kids are, especially the youngest kids, are processing information so quickly and, and they're, they're besieged by it. And in some ways, I'm, I'm very worried about them because I, I see them as potentially becoming overloaded mm. at the same time because they're adapting and they're growing and they're, and they're fitting into this world. They're kind of like, eh. You know, they're, they're real casual about it. It doesn't seem to bother them. Right. No, I agree. I agree. But they're operating on like all these systems of like, it's, be, it's, it's obviously human because they're capable of it, but it, it, it seems to be like another chakra is forming now. Or <laughs> the, you know, it's a digitized humanity now. It's weird. It's interesting what you're saying. I mean, when I was seven, I was like, bleep, 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 you know, I was just yeah. a little bit of that little kid just running around, you know, no, now. Butterflies. Seven, yeah. Right. yeah. Right. No, I get it. And, and now seven-year-olds are helping their parents, you know, set up their iPhones. I mean, you know. Yeah. Kind it's of interesting how the evolution, I mean, we're witnessing the evolution. So being from one era, I mean, can you imagine what it was like to, to witness 1800s during the 1800s? And start to witness things flying in the air, airplanes and yeah. telephones. I was in Africa one time, and I remember uh, these kids would pick up my iPhone and flip it on and take pictures. And I'm like, how does a kid know how to do that? And I was talking to a local guy. He goes, you have to understand that digitized information was the first uh, technology there. They never had access to primitive dial phones or anything like that. The right. first, yeah, in this village, at least in Malawi, where I was. So it's like, it's what's being presented in society, what technology leads to surviving in the workplace, what you have to know. It's like, it's overload and it's beyond human, at least for me, because I don't come from that. I'm adapting to that because we have to, mm -hmm. but I wasn't born into this. So if you're born into this, this is all you know, right. but you don't have a reference for what we know. And for us, it feels very foreign and right. not human and painful. But I think if you're from it, you, that's just life. That's just how it is. Yeah. They, they went from, they went from the equivalent of vellum scrolls to iPhones. Right. You know? Yeah. For us, it jumped. we've been, right. we've right. been incrementally uh, 
uh, increasing our technological sophistication. But for right. them, like they just whoop, instantly, boom, yeah. that's whoa. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I really got you. Yeah. It, it, I was imagining cool. that. Yeah. <laughs> but how, you know, just like how, how, I mean, this shows you how incredible the human mind is. And so, you know, even though we have these tendencies, which, you know, these, these sort of warlike, aggressive, you know, that side of us, we also have an amazing ability to adapt. We have an amazing capacity for creativity and invention. Yeah. And human beings are kind of these strange amalgams because it's like we're finding, we're, we're sort of reinventing our souls generation by generation, you know, in terms yeah. of our, our what, 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 what we prioritize, what we feel is important, where we put our focus, yeah what we spend our time doing um, agreed yeah I, I think at least for me coming from the analog age as you say for me to feel like me instead of working i need we all need to adapt uh we I don't, i'm not saying go crazy and learn every iowa every aspect of whatever futuristic technology there is so you can say feel relevant relevant but um for me at least it's important for me to kind of connect stay connected to my roots not lose my grounding and my footing from what I know and what I remember. And the answer for that to me is getting up out of the system and going into nature and just resetting and really breathing and going back to these simple things. This is simple aspects of, of being a human being before there is any of this stuff. You know? Well, and I, I think one of the, one of the ways that we can reconnect with that uh, aside from physically getting ourselves into nature is, um, you know, I know you're a martial artist and, did, did you begin that when you were a kid? Was that a way of um, connecting with yourself physically, mentally and physically integrating? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I mean, I was out of the military in the 90s. I was a surgical technician in uh, the US Army. And I remember getting out of the military and going back to New York City. And I had a little bit of a drug problem, to be honest with you. And uh, I was, was this a Gulf War? Gulf War, this is during the Gulf War. Yeah, during the first Gulf War, yeah. And uh, I had a little bit of a drug problem. I was depressed, a lot of anxiety, and uh, just a lot of things I was carrying around I didn't have an outlet for. And I saw a little in a piece of, just like a notebook, like a, uh, not a notebook, but like a, the back of like, remember like the Village Voice? I think it was the Village Voice, it was a Village Voice or a New Times or something like this is in New York. He said, learn Kung Fu, you know, Wing Chun Kung Fu. And I remember just picking up the, a payphone and calling the number. And I talked to this guy named Alex Richter, who's still doing it. He's amazing. He studied in Germany. He's Cuban and German. And he studied with the best of the best of the best, a style of Kung Fu developed by a woman named Ing Moy. She was an abbess of the Shaolin Monastery. And she studied all the animal styles of Kung Fu and realized that uh, to give way instead of fight strength on strength, but to give way like certain animals and to use that force against the person. So what Bruce Lee took and turned into Jeet Kune Do. I studied Wing Chun Kung Fu at City Wing Chun under Sifu Alex Richter, who's still there today. He's a very good friend of mine and he's fantastic. And that gave me the impetus to fight these demons or at least have an outlet for them. Punch bags, learn how to breathe, learn how to move my body. And learn how to not be afraid and walk around with feeling like the world was 
about to attack me at any moment. That's the kind of feeling I was feeling. Almost like what these election days feel like right now for a yeah. lot of people, you know? So deflection and awareness, uh, it taught me a lot of that. And it's good to remind me of that because sometimes when you're not practicing, it's been a while. You yeah. forget the lessons we know. We need to like reconnect, like back to nature, reset. So thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's interesting that when, when practices are most needed, often that's the time when you're not doing them. Because you get into this, this freak-out state, you know, and it's fight or flight, and you forget, oh, I actually have all these awareness practices that I could be doing right now yes. that, would, that would actually help me. Yeah. So, it's yeah. funny. We, we have so, like you said about the capacity for human beings, it's like we have so many memories, even genetic lineage memories or DNA connected to our ancestors, both positive and negative, you know, we could freak out about something maybe that happened to a great, great, great grandfather. We don't know what, why we're having a bad day. Who knows? But we also have access to the knowledge that gave them the ability to survive for us to be born and be here now and apply that with what we've learned to stabilize our nervous system, get in action and to move forward out of a place of chaos into a place of well-being. Sometimes it takes just finding whatever it is to get your center to access that information. If we're too freaked out to open the door, we have to remember we can just open the door. It's there. And we have to remind ourselves of that. At least I do. Maybe you don't. Oh, I do all the time. I mean, I think we all do. And, and, and one of the things, too, is that there's such simplicity um, with regard to these awareness practices very often. And so I think a lot of people sometimes they think, oh, it's not sexy enough it's not complicated enough so they just kind of take it for granted and think it's but it, but it actually very simple consistent practices done consistently even short periods of time makes all the difference in the world that's it dana i uh i'm not i can't say that i've been perfect with this at all i mean who is um except for jack right there i see him <laughs> yeah jack the cat has it down i don't i could learn from this guy <laughs> but um i know that no matter what anxiety brings pts may bring depression may bring elections and politics and polarity and family and finances and everything you can possibly think that that causes this psychic weight for us to freak out over we have a choice thank god or whatever buddha universe whatever that we can get up every day and start over and set the tone by a, by a daily practice and that's, that's been the key for me. And I haven't done it perfectly, but if I do it a few times a week, it's, it's enough to give me a buffer between reality and freak out. You know, there's a little bit of space to build. You know, I can move within a space that's created by that practice. And it's almost like a little bit of a, a force field or a bubble that I can navigate in. And all this stuff can still be going on in the world, but I'm not taking it in as much. So my nervous system's calmer, that's all. So practice consistency little things access dna all that stuff yes a lot of coffee of course go ahead <laughs> yeah that too and <laughs> I, I think too that there's a um with regard to things encroaching upon us things happening because shit happens that's that's a given you, you're not going to stop i mean certainly with our choices that we make as we create our lives we can mitigate these things and make better decisions etc but there's mm. also going to be random asteroids coming in and we and the only thing that we have control over in those situations are our responses yeah. and i think that's a key thing and once people recognize that there's there's liberation that happens because when you realize that you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances that you yeah. can choose 
how to respond. Yes, and circling back, we were talking earlier, it's like the whole Kung Fu thing, I was becoming aware that I was becoming a reactive person. I wasn't, I was losing my consciousness to fear and to conditioning and to downloaded programs that either I created or my nervous system imprinted on me because of trauma or whatever. And so to walk around just like, you know, a reactive sort of uh, nerve ending, you know, just completely exposed to the world and everything's an issue. It's no healthy place to be. I think that's when bites disease and blah, blah, blah. So to go from act from reactive to proactive and conscious takes a little bit of work to kind of reprogram. And it's a lifelong thing. Cause you know, it's weird. It's like, you go so far sometimes, like I used to do a lot of Kundalini yoga, a lot of meditations. And I felt like my frequency was raised really high and I was super aware and floating. And then there's other times in my life where I'm just like, my frequency is so far down, I'm living on a primitive level of fear and survival. And it's like, but I can do this and I'm not, what happened? It's just like, I'm not in the pocket. I'm not doing what's necessary. And sometimes we have an upset that's so great losing people we love i know you've lost someone you you know someone very close to you and, yeah. and so have i this year several people yeah. and these kind of things can turn your whole world upside down so it's not always that easy yeah and i think one of the things that's so important is that you have compassion for yourself and recognize that you know it, it, if you're not on your game because you're still processing stuff i mean i know i felt like i was kind of underwater even even now at times i feel like i'm underwater you know losing my mom um, yeah. And at other times, and most of the time, I'm, you know, very at peace with it. But I do have my moments where just kind of, uh, like, I feel physically dragged down, you know, just low energy and all that. So I give myself a, I give myself a pass and say, all right, just focus on doing maybe one thing today. Do that and then just call it a day and go do something fun. Sounds know? like really, really aware and proactive self-care. I think going easy on yourself, especially in these times, it's like, I mean, how busy can we be doing, 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 doing right now for what? I mean, I don't, it's like running in mud out there right now for me. It, for me, it's, it's like, what's the point? So my, it's not like just give up, but right. recognize the resistance in yourself and in the world. You don't have to buy into it, but when you are feeling it, ex internal or external, Go easy on yourself and take a break and go just do what you can do and one foot in front of the other some days that's all you need to do you know absolutely and my brother uh caused the calls the whole you know covid lockdown etc he said he calls it the big pause button yeah and that's what it has been for a lot of people because many folks are not working right now or they're doing completely different things or they're um like like many of us reinventing recalibrating retooling yeah. um, and it's actually been i really do believe that it's what you make of this time is important you know i mean yeah. you know some people are are able to like brad is still working thank heavens that's great you know because he, he's kind of in the in uh, peripheral to the construction industry so okay. that kind of thing is still going okay. and that's been a gift and um but but for many of us it definitely is a time of remaking and also being mindful about what we spend our time doing and also dealing with the frustration of because it certainly is frustrating 
to not be able to go out in the world and do what you normally do. And there's a grieving process with that for sure. Yes. You know, yes. including, um, including musicians and performers that I know, you know, they're, they're part of their livelihood is stripped away and their reason for being is gone or temporarily. And when's it going to come back? And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, anxiety around that. Understandably. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, lack of security and like frustration and fear over you know uh, stability and i mean can't people can't create in a public way like they used to because of the situation and they're trying different you know they're trying different things you know like uh drive-in movie stand-ups and you know stand up on zoom and you know it's not the same it's just that that human interaction is not there right now like it used to be and it's not the same so we have to forge a new way uh i think it's going to get better eventually but now it's just super weird everything's super weird it is and uh, and surreal and um and the other thing um that i was is is, is my brain going to fizz out right now (laughs) i thought it was really good it was (laughs) point i was going to make and i just went it's good it's all good um, but, uh, oh, the other thing I, I did want to ask is, you know, with regard to, you know, you're training in martial arts, full presence, you're learning about awareness, full presence, all of that. Do you mm. feel that it, 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 Im- that it impacted your, your acting? Yeah, I think that, uh, I was studying in New York at, uh, Terry Zweigoff, I believe his name was Zweigoff Studios and HB Studios. and um you know i got to sit around with some actor studio people too and um just going to different sort of schools of thought on the methods of acting and check or uh, yeah michael Chekhov and uh, stanislavski method all that old stuff and you know uh uta Hagen, of course uh in, in answer to your question like i'm just rolling in my brain like that journey in my brain, I remember when I was studying Kung Fu, uh, one of my exercises um, was to go to the Brooklyn Zoo, the Bronx Zoo, mm-hmm. and to study an animal that most represented a character I was, I was putting up on stage. And I remember doing that and studying, it was a polar bear, uh-huh. a polar bear who came right up to the, the bars of this, of this cage and the water was behind it. I remember looking in its eyes, and the eyes of a polar bear are cold. They he would have no issues with killing me if it if it made him let him survive. Lunch, and, yeah, just lunch, just a sandwich, you know, maybe a bag of chips. You know, he'd throw the bag on the floor and we go take a nap, and that would be my life. That'd be I'd be done. And I looked in his eyes. He looked in my eyes, and that's what I got. I got cold death without compassion. Right. And I was able I was right. able to bring that back on stage. And some of his physicality, I was able to, I, I did my scene and scene work with this thing and it completely took on a different transformation. But I also, because I was creating with this impression of the polar bear in my being, I was carrying that energy around with me and I took it into my Kung Fu. And so I remember moving differently and breathing differently and coming from a deeper, more like guttural place of just, it wasn't like I was anti-empathetic about who I was with in Kung Fu. I didn't want to eat them or be cold or icy. But I remember having a different energy because of this animal work that I was doing. And, and people noticed, I bet. I bet people responded to you yep. differently. 
hundred percent. So yeah. Oh yeah. I was like, babies would look away and cry. It was horrible, you know, but it's, it's stick or it stuck around a few, like a few days or whatever. And I, I would use that from time to time. And it made me realize we can access and tap into these really primordial aspects of our being that are connected to the animal world or whatever. And we can kind of like superimpose that on other arts, you know, and just for fun, you know, it's fun. Did you, uh, so did you run back to the Bronx Zoo and go visit the gorillas and hang out with them? And, like, I saw them, I saw them and like, I remember like just being, they looked happy. I know they're in the cages or whatever, but they were just having a good day when I was there, you know, they're like, they're, they're, I don't know, they're, their boobs were hanging out and they were just like, you know, eating and grabbing trees and just kind of like being really simple, uh-huh. really being simple and really totally aware. And I just, I got the impression that just, they just didn't give a shit anymore. And that's kind of how I feel. We're in their family group. And for them, that is the most important is the family group. The family's together. Yeah. It's okay. Life is good. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I used to have guinea pigs. I didn't study guinea pigs because I mean, guinea pigs are, they're adorable, but they're useless. Like, yeah, if someone broke in the house, a guinea pig wouldn't do anything. Right. They would just be cute. (laughs) Super cute. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But they, they did studies on guinea pigs and they're communal creatures. And what happens is you should buy guinea pigs in a group if you ever have them as pets, mm-hmm. because um, if there's only one left, they get super stressed out because yeah. they're used to being in a communal situation. Yeah, they're, they're like herd animals. Yes, exactly. And I wonder if that's how we are. I don't know. You know, I don't know. If I, think, I think we are. I think we are, we are geared for um, community and connection. And when we are separate from that, whether we're forced out of that situation i mean you would if you're if you're in a tribal group and you are cast out of that group you're gonna die right you don't have the safety of the group you don't have the ability to to delegate tasks you don't have protection of the group um right. that's a bad thing and i think that's why we have human beings have this primal need to fit in right because at another time it was the difference between life and death that's what it feels like to bomb on stage. It's like yes. really cast oh, out. They don't like me. Yeah, I'm oh gonna God. die. It feels like you're dying. You're dying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, of course, we say I died on yeah, stage. Yeah, I totally died last night. No one's making eye contact. Like, what did I say? Who am I? Yeah, am I gonna survive? But, yeah. But you know what's kind of ironic is that when you do well, you kill. Yes. That's the term. It's you like you kill. kill. It's like you kill the mammoth for the tribe so everybody can eat and enjoy and be festive. You know, it's very primitive. By the way, I have three coffees in front of me. One coffee, my girl made via, she's on the bed on her phone. And then there's another iced coffee that I have. And then there's a nice coffee from earlier today that I never finished. And that's excessive. And I apologize to you that's and everybody right. else. You are fueled. I've had a couple A couple of, we discovered Cafe, uh, uh, Cafe Cubano, no, Cafe. No, no, no. It was, um, why can I not? This is crazy. I think I have COVID brain. Um, no, it's all remember, good. I'll remember. Oh, Cafe Bustello. Oh, dude. We need this? Yellow and red. You mean that? I mean that. Yes. Yeah. Instant version of it. Oh, yeah. And we, we um, you know, uh, it, it has been a lifesaver, an inspiration. <laughs> and uh and a lot of fuel for great conversations absolutely and, you know, cubans know their coffee so my my grandmother I, my, most out of my family's there they're they're latin and my yeah. grandmother used to um 
Baruch Bustello on the stove all day in these little like uh, uh, steel, they're coffee makers. Yeah. And, yeah, and they're with Cafe Con Leche and my uncle Tomas had uh, even as a little kid drinks coffee all day. What would calm him down from crying is my grandmother would take a little bit of Custello with milk and sugar and put it on his on his mouth, like on his tongue, and he'd calm down. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you're and your mom's family is Puerto Rican, right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, caffeine is important. Ca coffee, of course. And then, <laughs> and then, is there um, were they using like condensed milk with coffee? Is that how they were doing cafe coffee? I think my grandmother used regular milk, but uh, I think traditional is condensed milk. Yeah. Yeah. Cafe cubanos and things like that. Really strong. It's really sweet and absolutely yeah. delicious and super strong. And, um, but yeah, I'm good. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're. You're. You got a full tank. That's <laughs> all good. No, we're just talking. And then um, I wanted to ask you about, you know, since we were talking about acting, um, I wanted to ask you about the narcissists. Oh, the narcissists. Film and, and, the, and the guy that, you, that you've been a frequent collaborator with. Ah, Quincy, yeah. Good friend of mine. He's uh, Quincy, I met him out here in L.A. probably, wow, 2006. It's been 14 years, something like that. I've known Quincy. Wow. He lives in New York now, but he and I used to, we were getting sober actually together. We, we both realized that we had some issues and we decided to do a program and we would just always talk and collaborate about art. And uh, turn that down. Yeah, it's okay. We'll talk about art and um, creating. And he came from like his dad wrote for The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And like he, he was a director, he lived in Beverly Hills. and. He ran around with all these great people. He was Woody Allen's uh, best friend in, in growing up. They lived right next to each other, I guess, on Quincy Street. And that's where Quincy gets his name. And uh, so Quincy is Woody Allen's godson. And he comes from all that. So he always just would, we talk about like what we want to do. You know, when we got ourselves back into a situation where we could create, what would we do? How would we do it? We started writing. He would write. I'd memorize. I'd add a little of this, a little of that. We create little scenes together. And then he said, we started, started shooting him a little bit. And then he just said, I'm just going to write something. And he wrote something. And uh, we, he wrote a couple of things before we did our first thing, Miles to Go. And um, these are just slice of life, character study, independent films. And, you know, we get some cool people to come in and do cameos and things like that. But um, it's been wonderful because it's really, it's very word heavy and character driven. So you have to memorize. We shot in... Brooklyn and Manhattan on the narcissist a couple of years ago now um, we would shoot sometimes 10 pages a day mm. uh, of dialogue we shot the whole thing 120 pages we did it all in like 10 or 11 days something like that so a full feature and like me I think 12 days total was the whole total if I remember correctly and some of the dialogue was pages and we wouldn't be able to cut just be long shots on the crowd and you can't tell New York to stop, you know, you're just shooting on like little cranes or whatever. And people would get in the scene and they'd look and we kept it in. It was awesome. People, some lady screamed, what are you doing? Get out. You know, it's perfect. It was New York. And we, I learned how to use my brain in a way challenged so much information. How do I get this out without sounding like a robot? So it was a lot really quickly, very heavily. And it's the, probably the thing I'm most proud of in terms of, the work that I've done for the, not just what people said, but 
some people I respect and I, I really admire f from an acting standpoint got to see it. They screened it at Tribeca and there's some active studio people who are very receptive and warm and kind and said some nice things to me for the first time. I felt like, wow, you know what? Maybe I'm, I'm an actor, you know, I felt very confident to let myself be that because you know, when you call yourself something, comedian, actor, singer, performer, you're always trying to prove that you're worthy to yourself sometimes, at least in my, my experience. And so that was the first time, I guess, probably from an ego perspective, it wasn't about the validation, but it's about like really feeling something in the moment, having that recorded and having my expression come through so much that people felt the initial expression in yeah. a way that I was trying to direct it with my energy. Because usually it gets cut up, misdirected, miscommunicated, or it's never on this, it never ends up in the film or whatever, anyway. Right. But this time it did and it really was nice and it was a beautiful feeling of transformation and love. And um, it was nice to hear that from people that I respect, you know? Yeah. And where, where can we see it? Um, where, where is it distributed or, or is it, is it available? There's a, there is a new place that, that you can go rent it. Uh, there, it's called Blockbuster. <laughs> no, no, there's a, uh, <laughs> sorry, I had to. There is a, that was a retro, that was a retro joke. <laughs> yes, um, 70s reference. Yes. Uh, on all the platforms, Narcissus is on Amazon Prime, I believe. Um, I'm not sure. There's a whole bunch of different formats, but I, I know it's on Amazon Prime. But it's fine. It's findable and it's streamable. It's streamable. I'll find out the link, whatever, and I'll, I'll send it to you if you want it. I don't know if you want it, but you know. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was uh, quite something. And I haven't done anything that extensive since, since COVID. I think I did a commercial and just some nonsense stuff, you know, nothing that really felt like I was working and doing something of that I would call, I would be proud of, you know, it's like this really big lag and then COVID hit. I'm just like, yeah. I'm just going day to day now and, and uh, trying to find balance and happiness and get rid of the fat and just find <laughs> joy. And when, peace. when did you, uh, when did you uh, discover spiritual psychology? Spiritual psychology. I knew some people who went to um, USM it's university, of Santa Monica, spiritual psychology school. Responded by a guy named John Roger, who was, I was like, kind of culty sounding. He's a guy who like, believed he was channeling the traveler that's called. And anyway, he's like a, a guy who was getting transmissions and downloads in the 70s and, and started this thing called the spiritual awareness, the mo I forget what it's called. Uh, something I can tell you right now. Who's that John Roger? That psychology, psychic protection. Here. here it is. Sorry, Dan. No worries. This guy, John Roger. John Roger. Yep. In the 70s, he's one of those guys. There's a lot of LA guys like this. They started a whole movement. The movement of inner spiritual awareness. MSIA, movement of spiritual inner awareness. And they had a lot of followers, still do. My friend Jason Garcia, who is an actor, been a bunch of stuff. He's one of their head guys now because he was with this guy since the beginning. John Roger started some spiritual studies in Santa Monica. And my teachers, Ron and Mary Holnick, 
uh, were studying, there were scientific brains from New York who were very literal and, you know, uh, rational human beings, but there also is that time they're exploring consciousness and things like that. They found John Roger, long story short, they found all these teachings and this accessibility to new spiritual paradigms and possibilities, and they format it into a scientific way. And then they said, we should start a school for people to understand this because it's a scientific way to access your heart center, really. So it studies teachings from all over, you know, Eastern, Western, science versus mystic. Long story short, John Roger was making money at the time. He says, why don't you start a school? Here's the money. And they started USM. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a ton of that, I'm sure, but they started this school. It's been around for a while, and I saw it help people that I knew who had experienced um, incest trauma to um, ridiculously uh, horrific, you know, life-altering traumas that I won't repeat, but I saw them come to peace with themselves and get out of their story and their narrative by going through USM. And so I was gifted of that program, you know, and uh, I was very lucky and it taught me how to um, define what I am, what narrative I'm living by, what, what traumas I'm living out in my day to day existence and how I'm carrying that consciousness and that narrative into my interaction with the world. And in a nutshell, I'm trying to be concise here. I don't want to bore you or anybody else. No, but not at all. Okay, in a nutshell, it taught me how to take components of Eastern and Western science and psychology and how to use those teachings, but to channel it through my heart center. Yeah, and so now it's just really about understanding what happened and using that as information and all the things we were talking about, self-love, self-care, taking, going easy on yourself, really to learn how to love myself is what I got from that program. Love myself unconditionally some days easier than others, but I have, I learned the tools to do that. And I got to feel love for the first time because I got to, I got to have compassion for the child that went through those traumas and didn't know any better. And I got to re kind of connect with those wounded parts of myself. And it may sound, I mean, if I'd have heard what I'm saying 10 years ago, mm. if someone was saying what I'm saying and I'm listening to it, I would go, this person is out of their mind, but to actually have, it's an experiential thing. You can talk about love and forgiveness and all the la-di-da things, but it's about the experiential aspect. And when you have that experience, when your whole body is flooded with self-compassion, um, self-love and forgiveness, lack, you know, releasing all your judgments and letting go of that story, it's healing on a deep, deep, deep level. So all that stuff yeah. can rematerialize and come back. It's a process, but that's what I learned in a nutshell. And I think it really, really, I know it really, really, really helped me. And, and it's also allowed you to help others too, because didn't you go into a uh, bringing mindfulness, uh, mindfulness meditation training into prisons? Weren't you doing that for Yeah, one of the things, wow, you did your homework. One of the, I forgot, I forgot I, I did. remember stuff. Amazing, you're amazing. Uh, yeah, one of the things we did at USM where there was a, some doctors, a doctor and his wife who went through the USM program. There's a lot of world leaders and really big people that go through that program, USM, and they go out to do big things. And they have the funds and they have the, uh, the means to, to implement these programs and they have the, they, they're all dialed in, you know. And what they did was they started taking these teachings to um, prisons 
and they would show prisoners who were lifers the same things we do. And I could tell you the process if you want to hear it, but if it's too involved, I don't want to take up too much time. But uh, I got to go into the prisons and see, I'm not even joking, I'm not even exaggerating one bit. I saw a guy who's probably in his 70s with another guy in his 70s. This guy was white, the other guy was a black guy, and then there was a couple of other people at my table who we were all working together. They've been doing this program for the past three years, and what he told me when it's his turn to speak is that he goes, you see this guy? This, guy, this guy's Leon. I'm making this guy's name up. I don't remember his name, but he goes, this guy, Leon, he goes, I'm the person responsible for putting the order out to have his brother killed in 1987. I did that, and he knows that, and we're friends to this day because we've forgiven each other, and I've forgiven myself. It makes me, it makes me want to cry because that level of like coming out of this tribal feudalism of survival and gang mentality into a place of real forgiveness and, and uh, accepting responsibility and, and letting this past stuff go, you know, just to come present and loving in a loving state is, uh, is transformative. And, you know, I hate to sound like a weirdo, but if we could all just taste that at the same time, we'd be so much kinder to each other. You know? Well, and you know what that reminds me of is, is in South Africa, post-apartheid, right? The truth uh, and reconciliation that was going on, you know, between yeah. the different communities, the, yes. the, the, the white South African community and the black South African community and the truth and reconciliation between the two to heal those rifts because they knew that they had to find a way to connect with each other and to heal that because if they didn't, they couldn't move forward into the future as a united South Africa. Yeah, I love that. And I wonder if that's even possible in this country between the Democrats and the Republicans. <laughs> Could I you imagine? Think, I would really like to think. I actually posted something today. I, I try to stay away from social media, although I will put out something, whether it's about the podcast or whether it's something that I think people would either find funny or beautiful or inspiring or something. Yeah. Um, but this post had everything to do with saying, we, you know, we are how, like, how are y'all doing? And yeah. we are all Americans. We we are, we are all Americans. We want the best for the best for ourselves and our children and our future. We all want the same thing, and I yeah. love it all. You know, and yeah. just kind of a way of of saying, hey, you know, we're all suffering right now. We're all uncertain. We're all scared. We, yeah. we, we don't know what's going on right now. Yeah, because um, a real finger pointing, you know, lack of. I don't know, lack of understanding. And each side thinks the other side is wrong. And it's, it's really basic stuff, you know, and it's just, you know, opposing views. And um, I don't know if there's a solution, but I will tell you if, if a guy who put an order out for another guy's brother to be killed and they can make it up, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's possible we can get over some of this ideology that we're so steadfastly rooted in and just yeah. look at what's important. And that's for us to be sharing this planet together and not trying to like you know capitalize all the resources for me and mine but to you know just share it equally and I, maybe that's and that i guess that sounds like socialistic ideas to certain people i don't know but well we are we are all on this one rock hurtling through space today. yeah you know but I, unfortunately like some people really do believe that the person who dies with the most toys wins it's a very low frequency state of mind but i'm I'm looking at the polls and I'm looking at like conversations I'm having with family and friends. It's like, 
there's a lot millions and millions of people who still think this way and that's just the way it is so i have to find peace within that and my for myself and not get too caught up in it. it's all i can do and also too the the division of of the the two sides is such that they're so polarized that they actually believe that the other side is going to destroy the country. I mean, it used to be that people would just agree to disagree. And, you know, back in the, back in the Reagan 80s or the, um, you know, or the Clinton 90s or whatever, I mean, and, and, or, and going back farther to, you know, the Kennedy early 60s and the Lyndon Johnson late 60s, um, people had differences of opinion, but they were able to just accept it and love each other anyway. And now there's this, which team are you on? And if you speak out in any way to question your group's view, right. then you're demonized as, oh, you must be one of them. And it's, it's like, no, 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 I'm not one of them. I'm just trying to make a point. Yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah, it's, it's really like Salem witch trial stuff now. It's really primitive. It's very reactive. And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm really getting to the point where instead of spending my time trying to dissect it and talk sense to people and try to convince to, people of something, you can't, you can't. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a cult on both sides. I think yeah. and you just have to not get caught up in it, you know, and I'm just watching and I don't know, I voted and I'm doing what I can do. And I'm trying to um, just make sure I stay sane and healthy in the process because some of this is out of our control, you know? Well, and, and you know, you, you, you basically just have to, you know, you, you have to make yourself laugh and you have to stay healthy and you mm -hmm. got to take care of yourself. And, and you know, we're talking about self-care and, um, you know, and also I, I kind of miss the, the, the days of doing comedy, you know, us in, at Clown House and, oh. and, and that exchange with an audience and being able to talk about anything. And because and, comedy is really the last frontier of being able to say what you think or say yeah. or, or to say whatever you want to say, you can say it in the realm of comedy. But even now, that is starting to become more censored. Yeah. You know, because we're living, we're living in a culture of the, um, the perpetually offended. Yes. You know, exactly. and that's. You can't offend this person. You can't offend that person. You right. can't be offensive to anybody at all. And that's just anti, I mean, that's anti first amendment, isn't it? I mean, you, you have the opportunity. You should be able to say what you want. I don't believe in hate speech. You shouldn't be able to like go up and bash, you know, people that are disadvantaged or whatever, you know, it's be conscious but speak your mind without the fear of being censored like going back to what lenny bruce had to deal with you know he couldn't get he couldn't work because he would be thrown off stage and go to jail every time you know it's it that's they a lot of those guys had to take those hits for us to have free speech and if we're going to revert back i don't i don't i can't see it going backwards but the social pressure is there to like just be this perfect package of an offensive neutrality which is like and i wonder if that's a product of going back to this digitized brain of a human being now, I wonder if that is always seeking these possible slights, always detecting these blips of offensiveness because mm -hmm. everything is so reductive. Microaggressions. Yes. Now, like exactly. microaggressive towards me. I and know. I'm offended. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and then the thing is, is that, you know, uh, as, as, as we, you know, and I see this in the millennial generation, especially, 
um, being offended by things. And I'm thinking, oh man, you didn't grow up in my neighborhood. You know, yeah. I mean, we learned how to, again, to, to, to get along and to uh, not take things personally. And, and also to understand that people are coming to you from where they're at. Right. So taking things personally is kind of pointless. And yeah. also the role of the comic is like the role of the court jester, which is to get to the truth and mm -hmm. to challenge what people think. Yeah. If you see something that maybe, uh, maybe you didn't see that before. Maybe this is a different aspect. And, oh, wow. I'm starting to question my own, my own belief system. That's the job of a comic. It is not the job of a comic to coddle the audience. Right. However, the difference between that and hate speech, hate speech is there to incite violence and to do right. damage to people. That's, that's, the, that's, that's, out, the, that's, that's beyond the pale and that's not acceptable. Right. But challenging the mores of society, that's, you know, the people who are the Richard Pryors, the George yeah. Carlins, the, you know, the Lenny Bruces. Yeah, they did um, it so masterfully, you know, so beautifully, you know, and they really illuminated the deeper truth to the status quo. And they could do it through so many different ways, but it was colorful and it was jarring and it was offensive, but in the best way a lot of times, you know? And right. it's important to keep that vitality in the consciousness of, um, you know, comedy and to allow that, not censor. Censorship is just, I get it if you're just, you know, like you said, the delineation needs to be there, I think for people to uh, not feel threatened. But if you have, if you feel, if you're so sensitive because of the way you're operating in this world that a microaggression could cause you to feel threatened, then the onus is on you. It shouldn't be on comedy, Yeah. you know? Well, we do live in a, in a victim culture. There, there is some of that. I don't, I don't like the way you're speaking to me right and now. I, yes. I, don't, I don't like what you're implying. Really offensive. You know? <laughs> I find it aggressive and, and it's and, microaggressive. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, but, but that kind of thing is actually keeping people from having real exchange and real dialogue. And then that leads to further misunderstanding. And yeah. so that, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing is I have to say, it's like, it makes me think of like, it's like, there's no one's really Rick. We're having a real conversation about things. Cause we're, we're not trying to placate some, ideology about what's popular and what's going to sell tickets or get likes or we're not trying to feed some sort of machine that we created that's been there to monetize everything that we do we're actually just having a conversation for the sake of conversation and to go a little deeper as human beings and try to illuminate something so we can understand what the fuck are we doing here and why is this happening how do we fit in what's our place how do we make it better and how do we like come out of this experience as a human being better and they may be leaving here better than when we left and how to express all that and not lose our mind in the process is because what we see is going on around us is, is kind of madness. And there's beauty too, obviously. Of course. But this in itself is my point. Real conversations, you don't, they're not being had because everybody's too offended to, to allow it, you know? Some of the best comedy incites a laugh at something that you kind of shudder to yourself that you're laughing about it. Yeah. That, that, that's an art right there, which is like, oh my God, oh, you know? <laughs> like, oh. I can't even suppress it. Yeah, it has to come yeah, out. Exactly. It comes out all weird. Oh. I think I really, should, I really shouldn't be laughing at this. 
This I always loved, I always loved, you know? I loved all the comedy that I've done, which is very little, and I'd say the majority of it horribly. But I always loved it when I was trying to work on a joke, and before I got to the punchline, I was getting laughs about something that in my mind wasn't even funny at all. And it, they weren't laughing at me because I was struggling. They were laughing at the idea being formed on the way to the joke that probably didn't, didn't, didn't end up getting a laugh at all. I think but, they were laughing with you, honestly. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think they were laughing at I just love those like oblique or like tangential laughs that come from something you're creating in the moment, but you're not aware of. It's, uh -huh. I, always, I always love that feeling of hearing laughter genuinely and you're trying to work out something. And it's just, it's very, you're not there yet, but it's still funny. I always love that, but it has nothing to do with what you're saying. It just made me think. Well, and also, if you're, if, you're, if you're up in front of a room full of comics, they're all, they understand what you're doing and what you're going through. And they're laughing at the recognition. That's, That's part of it. Like, oh, man. Oh. You're dying. He's got himself in, he's in a box. He's painted himself into a corner and he's trying don't to get a laugh so you don't hang yourself. <laughs> <laughs> ah! You ever hear one of those? Ah! The thing that, oh, yes, yes, Jeff Husband's going, ha, in the back of the room. Yes. yes shout out to Jeff. We love you. I know. Um, Jeff, Jeff's great. Oh, my God. But, you know, the, the thing that I found so freeing about doing comedy, because I, I, I don't, I'm not a comic. I, I was somebody who did comedy for about a year and a half. But I'll tell you, it taught me so much about how to hold an audience hmm. and how to, uh, be okay with sinking or swimming and and the freedom to be able to express yourself in your unique way yeah you're you got your own words and your own material and and at its best times it was like flying it was yeah for sure amazing amazing experience and um yeah. you know uh i i will never forget it and and um you know i i might someday go back you know step in here or there you know because why not yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, uh, but I learned so much from it. It was, it, it actually helped me be braver in the rest yeah. of life. Oh, yeah. Like when you go on stage and like, I, I've had a couple of times where I actually got, for some reason, everything was just working and I didn't have to try. It was just all there. I wasn't thinking, just in the flow. And you're getting laughs and people are like, for whatever reason, really into it. And then you walk off stage and like you get a couple of high fives and like, nice. Blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, man, I just was free I was just free I was free to just float and create and paint and be it messy and it didn't matter I didn't have to be perfect and that elation that feeling of elation and that sense of like facing your fears and yourself in front of a group of people granted sometimes those groups of people only like three people you know but they could have been 15 20 people doesn't matter mm -hmm. the next day to the next week I'm, I was still in that flow state yeah where you know things this sort of like just moving on this like energetic like ice skating through life you know just sort of flowing through life you know just because something was opened up and i don't know how to explain it but i have to get back on stage too i feel you i really yeah. do i miss it's it it's like a portal opens yeah suddenly you take flight and in those three minutes or five minutes or ten minutes or seven minutes yeah um you, you, you have this amazing thing and there's nothing like having a live audience in front of you because there's a connection, there's an energy that, an energy exchange that you have that you don't have on Zoom 
you don't have behind a glass wall. You don't, it's yeah. really got to be, you know, in the trenches. Right. So right. Really hoping that we can get back to that sooner rather than later, because this is an art form. Yeah. That needs to yeah. survive. And these comedy clubs need to survive. Yeah, it's a pretty theaters, small theaters, uh, performance venues, movie theaters, all this. I, I do worry about that. I do too. It's it's a whole new world happening here and hopefully this art form is still viable by the time it's all over. But uh it'll always be viable, but I just hope it's accessible. That's yeah. all to, to everybody because I, I miss going to the comedy store and all that stuff and getting on having the option to get on stage and like I'm, I, I feel like I'm okay with failing right now. I, I'd love to be able to get the opportunity to go fail somewhere. Yeah. You know? And yeah. just get some ideas out and like just exclaim what is, what's happening now? What is, what, how are you guys? How are you doing? Mm -hmm. What are you doing to stay sane? Connect, you know, express and get this feeling, this pent up feeling of like, you know, sometimes you just want to like, ah, just, just get it out. Yeah. And, Comedy and expression and art can do that, and it's like clearing the air. It's like fireworks. It's it's a it's a uh, it's a catharsis. I mean, that's what the Greeks, you know, the, the in 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 Greek ancient Greek culture, theater was a a a, a group catharsis. It was mm. a way for people to go through something together, and then ah, at the end of it. You know, whether it was a comedy in which people would be laughing their heads off or a tragedy, oh, you know, but it was something that you all went through together. And it was almost like a shamanic journey because like actors were kind of shamans, shepherd, helping to shepherd people through the experience and, and move between worlds. And there is something mystical and, and important and vital about, about the arts in, in human society. And here we are in the situation now, and I think this also feeds into some of the political division, which is we're separate from one another. We're not gathering in groups anymore right, right now. And so we really are divided and, and we're walking around like this with our faces covered. We can't even see each other smiling anymore. And that's really disturbing to me. That yeah. is, that's one of the worst things about you know, I mean, of course, I don't mind wearing up my bandana when I go into a store or whatever, but I hate the fact that everybody's walking around not being able to use this, you know, this face that we've been given to express ourselves and connect with each other. Right. I wouldn't be able to tell that you're, you're sending microaggressive energy towards me right now. <laughs> exactly. You're wearing a mask. So I appreciate this. No, I, I, I feel you. And it's like going back, I keep circling back to like this this digitized human thing we we're talking about. I'm really kind of into it. It's like, I'll make this concise. It's like, it seems like when you're working in, everything is reductionist theory. It's, it's about isolating and extracting and having a clean singular uh, experience with each component, right? It's like Western medicine. It's very, very reductionist. But what I'm trying to make a point of is, is that it's almost like that sort of ideology is being forced upon us as in a society under this COVID regime, so to speak, is because we are forced to be isolatory. We're forced to reduce, kind of like retract from, we're, we're not really allowed to be cohesive. We're almost by law, you know, uh, being forced to 
be so singular and we are also very easily offended if someone gets in our space even more so than before so it's like that culture that we were talking about of having feeling microaggressive or microaggressed towards or feeling you know offended so easily we're living that right now even more so so it's it's exclusionary as opposed to inclusive that's the key thing and one of the things is when you see people on facebook saying things like if you have a profile picture where you're not wearing a mask, I'm going to unfriend you. I oh, mean, it's right. shit like that. Yeah, dude. That is just like, what? Yeah. Thank you for the ultimatum. I'm unfriending you now. And actually just the more I go on social media, the more I realize I don't need to be on social media. It's really just poison. At it this is. Point. And, and that's why I always find, and, and you know, both Brad and I have found that as we have stepped away from social media, Life is so much better. Yeah. You know, use it as a tool, as a tool to get things out there, whatever. But 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 don't get roped in and don't go down the rabbit hole, right. because when you go down the comment rabbit hole, oh boy, it's yeah. <laughs> it's and somebody is gonna somebody's gonna get upset and they're gonna misunderstand what you were saying and you're thinking, oh Jesus, even if I were a better writer, I don't think that you would understand it because you've got this idea in your head about what you think that I'm about, but you, but, but you don't, because mm. we don't know each other that well, because we're only friends on Facebook, and we don't, you know yeah, what I mean? It's, it's just not like, even a real friendship, it's this virtual thing that we think we're friends, it's, exactly. so, again, it's, it's exclusive, it's reductionist, it's not even really connected to humanity, it's a digital friendship, yet we have these really human feelings, so we get offended, it's crazy, it's a crazy thing, so I'm just, uh, I don't need that in my life anymore right now, no. I, just, I just don't. I just don't need it. You you have a, a much better situation going out in your in your magic in your magic bus with Lita, <laughs> exploring yeah. the world, going up to Northern California and having these incredible adventures. And I mean, what what an amazing time actually that is. Because I've been following you on on social media. <laughs> hey, there it is. When no one's immune, Dana. No one is immune. That's okay. Enjoying, yeah. so enjoying the, the adventures of you guys. And uh, it's like, it inspires me and it, and it gives me a little virtual vacation, you know? Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad that does it. I've, I've been hearing similar things on social media. I'm such a hypocrite, we're both hypocrites. That's what we're finding out. We're the problem. We're the, we're the ones causing microaggressions. Sorry guys. Uh, we, we just, yeah, we got an old van and we put in hardwood floors. And we, we put the money to fix up the engine and make it nice and clean so we can travel up in the mountains. And when all this was going down with COVID and, you know, LA and like, there's no auditions going on right now, for, at least for me. And I just said, you know, what is the point of being here right now? Let's go someplace natural. And she wanted to go someplace natural. We both agreed to Northern California. Mm -hmm. So I put in the harder floors. I got the LED lights and I just got them in yesterday. They're remote control. They're awesome. We got the bed, we went to the foam factory, got a nice comfortable thing. And we're putting in cedar roof right now and cedar walls. And it's a fun, just little travel bus. And I, it's all worth it. Cause when you get up into these like majestic mystical mountains and you pull over and there's no one around and it, you just park and you're under giant redwoods. And in the morning time you open the door and you're surrounded by fog and you make a cup of coffee and you take a walk and you're just covered in like just beautiful natural essence of ancient redwoods and mist 
birds and the sun starting to speckle through and it makes you not care about social media and realize we're all on this planet for a very, very short time. None of this matters. What's important is being happy and being with those who you love and going to beautiful places and creating good memories because at the end of the day, it's all we got. And so that's what we're doing. So I'm in LA for a little bit, but we're fixing up the van and we're going to split probably in a week. And I'm glad I could sit here and talk with you. It's good to connect again. It's nice to see your yeah. face. I'm glad you and Brad are all good and everything yes, is okay. We're hanging in. We're yeah, hanging in. We all, we're all doing the same. And yeah. you will also be moth-free in your van, given That's that right. you have cedar planking. <laughs> That's exactly right. No moths, no bugs. And apparently what I found out is cedar is a natural insulation. So I've got insulation on the roof, mm -hmm. and it's very thin. It reflects the sun. But if you put cedar in, it's also natural insulation. It will keep things warm when necessary and also cool when necessary. Right. And it smells amazing, like you're in a cabin. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, so that's fun. wonderful. Thank you yeah. so much for, for doing this. And, and it was just really so great to reconnect and, and, um, and, and talk about clown house days and, Absolutely. and uh, big think stuff and, and, um, and about connection and how necessary it is. And yeah. you know, may, may we all have more of that and may things settle down, you know, simmer down out there and, uh, and kind of get back to um, get back to reality instead of this, spin i think i think it would be helpful just to be through the election cycle get it done whatever happens move on move forward absolutely you know, what we can do. absolutely in the meantime as we said go easy on yourself and you know everybody's everybody's struggling pretty much on some level even if you know all the money in the world doesn't make the answers it's uh it's just uh about self-care and caring for those who, who you love and also giving a shit about the people that you don't love you know, having some compassion and empathy for those who are suffering. And there's a lot of suffering right now. You know, crime is up 25% in Los Angeles. I, I believe it. Yes, yeah, since last year. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, so we go easy and uh, we keep moving. And this too shall pass, as they say. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything else you want to cover? Any, any other questions? Oh, that's, that sounds good. That sounds like a great place to, to tie a bow around it. Okay. That Thank sounds you good. so much, Zach. My pleasure. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for having me on. And uh, we'll talk soon, okay? And that was yeah. my wonderful friend, Zach Teagan. So great to catch up with him. And also all of the other bright lights that I have been speaking to lately, uh, bringing you these conversations from here. I've really been enjoying this process. And I hope that you're finding these talks inspiring, uh, centering, balancing, and entertaining, most importantly, uh, during this weird time, during this election cycle and during the COVID lockdown. So I hope you all are well. Hope you're taking care of yourselves, taking care of each other. And until next time, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs>